Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, back to the podcast. So in today's episode, we are going to be talking about SIBO, which stands for Small Intestinal Bacterial Overgrowth. Wow, that's a mouthful. Um, And how it's possibly the main cause of IBS. My guest today is Dr. Dominique Vanier. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Madeline. I'm happy to be back. Yeah, so um, this seems to be like a, you know, a hot topic. More More and more people are, you know, talking about this and I figured why not come on the podcast and actually, you know, define, you know, what the, what this thing is and how it happens. But I I figure before we get started, maybe we'll do like a brief introduction because I'll encourage listeners to go back to our previous episode about digestion and then they can learn a lot about you in that podcast. But just, you know, just to build some context, let's do a brief intro. All right. Um, Yeah, so I am a naturopathic doctor, um, which means that, you know, I I treat patients more from a primary care perspective, but, you know, everything I do is natural in how I try to achieve a clinical outcome. So whether that's diet or, you know, supplementation, um, acupuncture, you know, I often will run a lot of labs to make sure that, um, you know, looking at looking at you know, a patient more objectively, but anything natural in order to get somebody feeling healthier and back to balance. So I'm um, working in Mississauga, one of the clinics I'm working, you know, fortunately alongside you. Um, and uh, I love my job. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, and we're so happy to have you as part of our, our team. So, okay. What the heck is SIBO? Let's start there. Yes. It's not really uh, the sexiest of, of terms, um, you know, SIBO, it, but SIBO is kind of like it's, you know, uh, the new kid on the block, at least really over the last five years. Um, so SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And really what it is, is it's what its name suggests. And that's an inappropriate overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine. So you know, we as humans, we're supposed to have a lot of bacteria, you know, trillions of bacteria really in the large intestine, but we're not supposed to have a lot in the small intestine. So that's more of a somewhat sterile environment. And so we can actually quantify, um, you know, the bacteria in in the small intestine. So by definition, it's bacteria that exceeds 10 to the exponent of three, um, you know, units essentially. So um, and we, 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 you know, we can further define SIBO into a bunch of categories, really three main categories. So there's something called hydrogen overgrowth SIBO, um, a methane overgrowth SIBO, and then a third one, which we actually can't really test for, but that's um, hydrogen sulfide overgrowth. And basically what happens is these bacteria that are inappropriately in the small intestine will release gases, so hydrogen, methane, hydrogen sulfide, and we can detect that on a patient's breath test when they do a breath test. Okay. 
Um, so basically you're saying like, you know, there's bacteria that got in there that's like really not supposed to be there. And once it's there, um, it produces a, a type of gas that can be tested. Um, so why don't, like, how did it, how did it get there? Right. How does yeah. it get there? Like the million dollar question. Yeah. yeah. We, uh, you know, there's some very clear ways that we know that SIBO can get there. And then there's other very unclear ways. So, um, you know, basically SIBO happens when there's something that impairs the migrating motor complex. And so you're like, oh, what is that? That sounds pretty boring. Well, just think about like the migrating motor complex is really just the motility. It's the motility or movement of food through the digestive system. This happens at the, you know, the central nervous system level. It's, it's autonomic, you know, it's, it's almost like breathing, right? We're not, we're not really thinking about it, but naturally food is supposed to move through the digestive system at appropriate intervals and something has affected the body's ability to properly, um, you know, move the food through and to properly engage the migrating motor complex. So examples of that are, you know, something more straightforward, like altered anatomy. So for example, some patients who have um, inflammatory bowel disease, maybe they've had a, you know, a bowel resection, or maybe they have strictures. Well, because there's an issue with, you know, now there's a change in the anatomy, there, there can be more likely to be an overgrowth in the small intestine. Um, but there's, you know, there's, there's other things too. So a lot of uh, many patients who have SIBO um, in their past have had a, an incident with food poisoning, which is, which is interesting. So this is like post, you know, post-infectious gastroenteritis, which maybe later we, we were able to actually test and it is SIBO. But something happens with a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people who have this food poisoning incident where the body then develops anti antibodies and there can be a cross reaction where the body gets confused and then it develops antibodies against these protein cells in, again, the migrating motor complex. So now we're seeing, you know, an issue again, back to exactly what, you know, the migrating motor complex is, is now impaired. Um, you know, and other examples too are things like hypothyroidism. Okay, so it's like more of a, a metabolic issue. And we know a lot of patients with hypothyroidism have constipation. So they are at a higher risk of developing SIBO. Um, other infections like C. difficile, Giardia, Lyme disease, um, patients with scleroderma, diabetes, um, even those who are on proton pump inhibitors, which are the main acid blocking medications, they are at a higher risk of SIBO as well. And then after all that, stress is also a risk factor. So it really depends, right? Like that's why going through a patient's history is really important to see if we can start deducing what the actual cause of the SIBO is. Is, okay, so you're saying like, um, you know, could be an anatomical thing, could be uh, a metabolic thing. Obviously stress impacts, um, you know, how much energy is being dedicated to the digestive system. So is it that the food is moving too slowly that, you know, in that process of, dig you know, that in that process of digestion, it, the food's actually like, is it fermenting in there and developing bacteria like as, as one potential? But yeah, absolutely. So that is one potential, right? So let's say it's moving too slowly. 
um, where, you know, the, the transit time um, is, is a major issue. So let's say the patient is more constipated. Um, that, you know, that that's a possibility, or it can be that the patient is actually, um, you know, or, or it could be that the, the migrating motor complex is, you know, moving food through too quickly. So we're seeing symptoms more on the, the watery or loose stool, you know, watery diarrhea spectrum. And even some patients will have the constipation and then they actually have very loose stool formation while feeling constipated, right? So all of those, and it really depends on the person, but all of that leads to an issue with the, the migrating motor complex. Is there anything, uh, like, so it, food is supposed to move one way, right? It's one, it's supposed to move one direction. Um, is it, it supposed to. So is another possibility that like, whether the valves maybe between the small and large intestine don't close fully. Like, I guess that would be more like an anatomical or potentially like some nervous system damage of, of sorts. But I mean, could it be that like you're getting backflow into the small intestines? Like, is that a potential thing that could yeah, happen? Definitely. That is possible, right? Like, so the ileocecal valve between the uh, small intestine and the large intestine, sometimes that can be open but sometimes it's working properly and the patient will still have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So um, it's, there's no clear cut, you know, you know, if this, then this type of um, di diagnostic algorithm that we really have. And, and, and so that's, I guess what makes the condition somewhat complicated and that there's still so much research that's coming, coming out about it. We have, we know a lot more than we did five years ago, um, but uh, there's still, there's still a long way to go. Yeah. And there's def and it's interesting because, you know, we're starting to actually see discussions around the microbiome as it relates to pain and other, you know, like sort of what you would think physiotherapy or pelvic health related conditions. We're starting to see, you know, that the microbiome um, is really important. And if it's off, it really sets up, you know, the immune system and the nervous system to be, you know, can make it hypersensitive. It's just really interesting to see that there's this uh, greater um, interest in learning about what the microbiome is actually doing because it's like massive. Absolutely. Yeah. And I really don't think you can tease apart, you know, nervous system with bacteria or the microbiome, right? They're so intricately connected. And even with patients that have SIBO, you know, either some of them will, will have had, a, you know, very significant event or period of events that was really stressful for them. And that may be the trigger. And then those that have SIBO now may be a little bit less stress resilient. So it's the chicken or the egg argument, but we definitely know that there is some sort of relationship with the central nervous system, specifically the vagus nerve, right? Which is our parasympathetic rest, rest and digest um, nervous system. And that is implicated or there is an issue with that in patients that have SIBO. And then we know, right, when there's an issue with the vagus nerve, we can see a whole bunch of other things happening too beyond digestion. Yeah. Um, you know, I think when we're looking at like complex pain presentations in physiotherapy, very similar to something like SIBO and naturopathy, like the subjective assessment, like really trying to understand you know, what's going on in a person's life, what, what kind of events were going on, you, you know, it, it doesn't, it, it's not to say, oh, like this event led to this, but it does highlight um, 
you know, that there is an interconnection. There's like a buildup, you know, oftentimes these things don't just start on like day one, right? There's always, there's, you know, the iceberg, you know, started underneath before it like went above, right? There's so much happening underneath that we're trying to tease out um, in order to make good recommendations on treatment, right? Absolutely. I'm assuming yeah. that SIBO is very similar, right? Okay. It is. So what's, okay, so you were saying, you were mentioning like SIBO potentially, um, actually, you know what, I'm going to ask this first before I ask uh, about IBS, which is, and maybe this is going to answer both questions at once, which is like, how would somebody, like what, what would they be experiencing? Like what are they, when you're doing your assessment, what are people most commonly, um, com yeah, I don't want to say complaining, but what are they most commonly experiencing that makes you think it's SIBO? Yeah. So the things that I am really looking out for are firstly a diagnosis of exclusion, right? That's really important. What that means is we have excluded something more serious happening, such as celiac disease, you know, IBD, right? Called Crohn's and colitis, um, even, even cancer, right? Because colorectal cancer sometimes just looks like IBS, which is very scary. So, so a diagnosis of exclusion, and that's, what, and that's what IBS is as well. Okay, so back to SIBO. We've, I, you know, often patients will come to me and they've already had a colonoscopy, an endoscopy, maybe a barium swallow. Maybe they've had an you know, abdominal ultrasound to look at their liver and their gallbladder, and now they're here. And what they're presenting with is this something postprandial, meaning after food bloating. There seems to be issues either with really the beginning of the meal or right at the end of the meal where they feel incredibly bloated, distended, so they may look in the mirror and they look six months pregnant. There's a buildup of gas sometimes. So this it's like chronic dyspepsia where maybe they're okay in the morning, but as the day goes on, they get worse and worse and worse, you know, until they go back to bed. There can be excessive gas, burping, nausea. Sometimes they will have heartburn, right? So this can be, SIBO can actually be a major cause of reflux, which a lot of people may not know about. Um, the sensation that food is not moving through, they may feel like they're prematurely full, um, you know, and then other things too, like a, there's definitely a strong food sensitivity component where, you know, patients with SIBO often will know, you know, I can have these foods and I cannot have these other foods. These foods are going to make me flare up right away. Um, and again, the, the, what's important is, is evaluating the, the bowel movements and the bowel patterns. So either, you know, chronically loose, watery diarrhea, chronic constipation, and it can be, you know, it can be constipation defined as, you know, I don't go to the bathroom every, you know, every, until every three, four days, or, or I have to sit for 30 minutes before bowel movement comes out. I feel like I'm constipated and nothing is coming until I give myself enough time to have a bowel movement. So they may be going every day. It may be incomplete evacuation, um, and it may take them a really long time to have a bowel movement, um, or just alternating, right? Like just complete, like... <laughs> you know, wild, wild west of, of, of bowel movements and mixed and no, you know, no method to the madness. You just never know what's going to happen. Um, and, you know, other things too, which are notable. So like undigested food in the toilet. 
So we're supposed to be absorbing, you know, our food in the small intestine. Well, if there's undigested food that lends to, is there something happening in the small intestine relationship with the pancreas, you know, kind of, kind of upper in the, in the GI tract. Um, some patients will have issues with digesting fat as well because what SIBO, if there's the bacteria in the small intestine, what it can do is it can actually deconjugate bile from the gallbladder. Okay. So they may notice. What does that mean? Yeah. So what's what's deconjugate? (laughs) Thank you for asking Madeline. Uh, Deconjugate just basically means it's not making the bile. So bile is as effective. So what bile is supposed to do is it's supposed to properly help with the digestion of fats in your diet. Well, if bile is not able to do its job, then we may see too much, too much fat in the stool. And then the stool may float above at the top of the water. Um, we may also see, especially with longstanding SIBO, um, issues with vitamin deficiencies like iron, uh, B12, maybe issues with the fat-soluble vitamins, vitamin A, D, E, and K. And then SIBO is also associated with some skin conditions. So rosacea, for example, is a pretty common skin condition. People with rosacea are up to 13 times more likely to have SIBO. So there's a lot, right? There's a lot that, you know, that can, can possibly happen or a patient can present with. Um, but again, it goes back to we want to make sure the more serious things have been ruled out. And then we can really hone in on what's happening maybe in the, you know, in the small intestine. Where does H. pylori come into this? Is that, right, because a lot of the symptoms you describe are very similar to like an H. pylori situation. Like, is that a bacterial overgrowth or like we're just not, or is it that that bacteria shouldn't be there and it got in there? H. pylori is interesting, right, because it's um, it's stomach, small intestine, area, junction, um, it, again, it's, it's, you know, it's not supposed to be there just like SIBO. It can cause a lot of the same symptoms. It, um, pretty much actually all of the symptoms that I'm describing, we can test for H pylori. It's quite easy to test for it. Um, you know, often patients will do a blood test followed by a breath test. Sometimes they'll have it had an endoscopy with a, with a biopsy. Um, but, uh, you know, I think what's most important is seeing a good practitioner who really focuses on this area that makes sure that the workup um, is done properly so that we can start differentiating, you know, oh, we've ruled out H. pylori, let's focus on something else, you know, or we've ruled out SIBO, let's, let's see if we need to test for H. pylori. We don't want to miss anything is basically what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump to the testing question because it seems most appropriate now that you've sort of tossed out a couple of things. So you, you said like, okay, so there's blood testing that's going to look at H. pylori. Like now will blood tests, sh- like will quote unquote signs of SIBO show up in a blood test? Are, is blood test enough to tell us anything? Unfortunately not. Yeah. You know, what you may see in blood tests is um, like a, a kind of a further downstream issues, right? If somebody has had SIBO for five or 10 years and they are now having significant nutrient issues such as iron and B12, well, then that puts a few more pieces into the puzzle. But no, there is not a blood test for SIBO. It's actually a breath test. Can you describe what that is? Yeah. And so it's actually a very easy test. It's non-invasive. 
Um, you know, patient, patient basically gets a test kit and they do it at home in the morning over a three hour period. And what it involves is it involves swallowing this solution, um, which may be glucose or it may be a different kind of sugar called lactulose. Sometimes the test will have both of them together. And essentially what happens is you swallow the sugar and then it feeds all the bugs in the small intestine. The, the, the bugs, they love sugar and very specific sugars. And so when you feed them, then they um, start basically releasing certain gases, like I mentioned earlier, hydrogen or methane or, or both. And the patient breathes out this gas. And when they breathe out over the course of three hours, we're collecting the gas on their breath in these small little test tubes. And then that gets sent to the lab and the lab analyzes it. And then we can see, you know, the natural course of, um, you know, or the way that the, the gases flow over those three hours. And then if it's according to the diagnostic criteria that it's too high, then that's a positive SIBO test. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're... Yeah. You're taking blood work to look at overall what's happening there. Then you're doing the breath test, right? Um, if it comes back positive, do you, like, is there more testing that you do on top of that, you know, to make sure it's, like, not a false positive or a false negative? Like, is there anything else that you can do to test for SIBO? So there are a lot of, you know, functional medicine practitioners, um, you know, or naturopathic doctors who will often pair up, you know, the breath, the sort of SIBO breath test with actually um, stool tests. So that may be, you know, that may be a culture, like a culture type of stool test. It may be a PCR. We're looking at the DNA of bacteria, fungi, viruses. Sometimes there's a, actually, they can be a combo test for the small, for the large intestine. Um, that is not um, as, I guess, accurate as the SIBO breath test would be. So, you know, if we want to look at both the small intestine and the large intestine, and sometimes that's most appropriate for a patient, then I'll do the, both the two separate tests, the breath test and then a large intestine stool dual test. And, you know, like we, we can see different things similar to the breath test. We can see different things happening with the stool that, suggests that it's SIBO, but again, you know, you want to, if, you, if, if we think that it's SIBO, the breath test is the, really the gold standard. Okay, gotcha. Now, an endoscopy, so when they go down, so basically that's the camera going down the throat, right? That's not, that's not actually going into the small intestine, right? That's just going yeah. into the no, stomach? It, 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 so yeah, through the mouth, it will typically get to the small intestine, actually, and, and it'll get to the top of it. So the small intestine is not, it's not this short little segment, right? Like it's a long, you know, we have a lot of surface area to cover. Um, some patients who, when they have a colonoscopy, and if they clear themselves out very well, the colonoscopy can actually get to the, the lower end of the small intestine as well. Um, but, you know, those tests are highly unlikely to see an overgrowth in the small intestine. Okay, I just wasn't sure if that test, if that type of testing tells us anything other than ruling out other things. Correct. You're right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to loop back to a question I was going to ask earlier, um, which is SIBO may lead to IBS? So 
it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because, yeah, so SIBO is a major cause of IBS. Up to 60% of IBS cases are actually SIBO. You know, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, is really, it's really an umbrella term. Like, again, you know, we go back to diagnosis of exclusion. Um, how we diagnose IBS is based on certain internationally accepted criteria called the Rome 3 or even the, the Rome 4 criteria is the more updated one. Um, but patients who fit into the IBS umbrella or category, they can all look so different from each other. And so I think, you know, like we're at the point where there's, we just don't know, you know, like somebody can have IBS and it can be, it can be due to a whole bunch of other things. It may be due to SIBO. Maybe it's because they have low hydrochloric acid. Maybe their pancreas is not releasing, you know, enough digestive enzymes. Maybe their gallbladder, they have something called, um, you know, biliary dyskinesia, which is this really fancy term for the gallbladder is basically spasming and not producing bile when it's supposed to or releasing it when it's supposed to. So, yeah. So yeah, back to your question. Yes. You know, um, SIBO is a major cause of, of IBS, but again, IBS is more, is more like, you know, kind of like a lazy diagnosis. It doesn't, it doesn't really tell us what the root cause is of, of that person's IBS. Right. Right. Which is very similar to some of our pelvic health conditions, right? Like vulvodynia doesn't really tell us why it's happening. It just says you have pain in your vulva, which is like, okay, great. How did it, you know, how did it get there? And, and again, it's so multifaceted of like how somebody came to develop this, um, that sometimes these diagnoses, I mean, that, that can be helpful to somebody who is looking to have a diagnosis, but like from, from the practitioner perspective, like, you know, we have to go kind of outside of that diagnosis in terms of the way that we question, you know, lifestyle and diet and all those other factors, because oftentimes these diagnoses doesn't help us formulate the treatment plan. Exactly. Exactly. It's really, it's a lot easier to say you have IBS, take this medication rather than you have IBS. What's causing it? You know, when, how has it changed? What's the history there? Um, what organs are we looking at? You know, what are all the systems involved? You know, stress management, your nervous system. Like there's, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more complicated, right? Yeah. Hundred percent. What? Okay, so somebody comes back. They have SIBO. Um, what are some of the most common treatment approaches? Like, what are some typical typical things that you'll you know maybe start off with, or you know, or what's the spectrum of treatment that's sort of available to people who may have SIBO? Hmm. So the treatment is really divided into three phases. And I often counsel patients by saying, this is going to take a while. You know, you've had this for a while. So there, there's not going to be this magic pill that is going to unwind and all of a sudden you feel amazing. It can take, you know, we're talking, I like to say this is more of a, it's a more of a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, and think about like over the course of six months to one year. Um, but there, you know, so there's three phases and we break it up into phase one being like the antimicrobial or kill phase. So we're really trying to specifically target the small intestine with that, you know, it can be, it can be either actually pharmaceutical antibiotics or, um, the somewhat the equivalent, which is herbal antimicrobials. 
um, you know, and more specifically rifaximin. Rifaximin is, it's, it's a pharmaceutical antibiotic. It's, it's out of my scope in Ontario, um, but I do know a lot about it. It um, was approved by Health Canada about maybe about two years ago for the treatment of IBSD. It's in the antibiotic class of drugs, but it doesn't act like other antibiotics. It's, um, you know, 99%, um, it stays, but 99% of it stays actually in the intestines. It doesn't get systemically absorbed like the way you see with other antibiotics. And then it's inactivated by the time it gets to the large intestine. So quite a few patients are candidates for rifaximin. Um, that would be a discussion that they would need to have with their medical doctor because that's, you know, the MD would, would prescribe that. Um, but, you know, the research has shown that herbal antimicrobials um, can be just as effective as the rifaximin combo therapy. So things like berberine, oregano, um, Alimax garlic, which is a type of garlic, um, neem, which is more of a, of a fungal, uh, has more of a fungal affinity. Um, and then, you know, something interesting that we haven't talked about either is in the treatment of SIBO, we have to remember that these bacteria are smart. Yeah. And they, yeah, they are, they are, they're, they're smart and they're persistent. They want to survive just like we want to survive, right? Like we, we kind of forget that these things are living beings and they don't want to die. Yes. Yes. And they're so smart that they can create something called a biofilm around themselves. And that is just like this protective sheath where, um, you know, it's around them and then antimicrobials or antibiotics can't penetrate it because it's, it's like a protective coat basically. So we have to actually add in a biofilm agent and a really common one is called NAC. So N acetylcysteine and essentially what it, tries to do is it tries to open up that, that, sh that, you know, that protective coat to allow the antimicrobial therapy to be more effective in actually killing the antibody, the, um, the, the, mic the microbes that are in the small intestine. Okay. Yeah. So that's phase one then we're talking about that's kill. So basically we want to, you know, we, we want to rid the bacteria out. Um, okay. So what's the next phase? So what we want to look for is an 80% improvement in symptoms. And this is, this is a subjective improvement, right? So the patient is saying, you know, I feel 80 to 100% better based on dyspepsia and bloating and gas and et cetera. Then we move to phase two. And so what that is, is that's like retraining the motility, right? So we talked about the migrating motor complex. And we will use something called prokinetics in this phase, where we're really addressing the motility aspect. And similar to phase one, there is you know, the pharmaceutical equivalent, and then there's the herbal equivalent. Um, the herbal equivalent is things like 5-HTP, which is a, you know, it tends to lead to serotonin, and there's, this could be a whole other podcast talking about serotonin in the gut, but you know, we, wanna be, we wanna be affecting the serotonin receptors in the gut to help with motility. Um, things like ginger, um, melatonin is an interesting one. Melatonin is often used in phase two and it depends on the dose. So melatonin low dose, like one milligram, three milligrams, that can help patients who are constipated and the melatonin higher doses, like we're talking about, you know, seven to 10, 
um, they, they, that can help patients who have more of a watery diarrhea, hydrogen overgrowth um, presentation. So again, obviously the, the patient wants to make sure that the dose is right according to the practitioner and the practitioner is monitoring the patient. But um, we you know, use a combo of these prokinetics in order to basically retrain the motility. And then the equivalent is um, a drug called Resotran or Prucalipride. Um, very low dose over about two months. And again, that would be prescribed by a medical doctor. So that's, yeah, so that's phase two. Okay. And then phase three is? Phase three is the repair. So we're, we're both repairing and we're adding in food. Like, you know, the main goal is to get a patient who, you know, back to the normalization of bowel function and bowel movements. Um, but another thing is to get them back to eating the foods that they once enjoyed, because when we see them, or when I see them in practice, they are often eating like five different foods, right? Like chicken breast, you know, zucchini, carrots, like really the, the diet is so minimal. So the goal of phase three is to both repair the small intestine with nutrients that we know help with the, you know, intestinal um, integrity, the intestinal membrane, things like magnesium, B6, zinc, vitamin A, and then as well as the slow reintroduction of foods now that we no longer have that insult happening at the small intestine. Right. Okay. Uh, are there, so, and I imagine, so you, you mentioned diet, um, are there any foods that are just simply no-nos if you have SIBO? Yes, there are. And actually, before I answer that, there's one thing I forgot yeah. to mention is that what's really important for people to know, right, again, is that this will take a while to treat, but there is a 50-50% relapse rate, give or take. So it is very common for patients to move into phase two and then it seems like the bacterial overgrowth is coming back and we move back into phase one. So there is a bit of a teeter totter, right? And, and the, the patience is, and, and I think that the, the hope is those are really important factors involved with the healing process. Now yeah. you said 50% relapse. Is that because they feel better and they go back to old patterns or is it still possible that you do all the right things you're doing, you know, you're, you're doing what you're supposed to do. There's, is there still a chance that you may read? Like, is that something that people need to be aware about? Like if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, not to be um, sort of what's the word, like um, discouraged by the relapse. So it can be both, right? Like, you know, obviously we want to make sure that the patient has the foundations of health. Um, in place, like eating, you know, eating healthy, home-cooked meals, sleeping well, which I'll talk about more in a second. Um, but it also can be just out of nowhere. Like, you know, a patient does the, the first phase and does the second, and then two or three months later, uh, we start seeing some symptoms come back. So it, it like, there's really no method to the, to the madness. Um, just some cases are more really more stubborn to treat than others what i have found is the methane overgrowth so the patients that right have that methane gas which is highly more correlated actually with constipation um, those cases are trickier to treat than the hydrogen overgrowth so yeah it's okay. um again yeah yeah so again thinking of this as a kind of sort of well really thinking about it as a lifetime journey right because what we're really talking about is healthy lifestyle 
um, choices. You know, we're, we're dealing with an insult. So we're dealing with like an acute type of, there's something actually not functioning the way it's supposed to be, but you know, we want to make sure that we don't give an environment where that bacteria that's really good at wanting to survive, you know, doesn't go hibernate and then rear its head, you know, because we sort of haven't been taking care of ourselves. Right. So really I think the foundational piece of like any health condition, obviously, you know, I'm sure you're going to talk about the sleep and all that piece. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a journey. It's like, think of it as your journey versus like, I'm going to do this for six months and then I'm good to go to eat whatever I want. Um, which in all likelihood may result in a return of this bacteria, right? Exactly. exactly. Um, sorry, we were talking about no-no foods. So the no-no foods, yeah. So, yeah. so keep in mind, bacteria love carbs and sugar. That's how, that's how they survive. Um, so, you know, things to explore, or at least, uh, you know, part of my treatment plan for a lot of my patients is the low FODMAP diet. So FODMAP, is stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. You know, this long, you know, basically what it is, is it's all, it's all certain length carbohydrates that are easy to ferment in the gut, leading to all the symptoms that I described before. Um, so there are certain, there are certain foods that are high FODMAPs that really um, will cause, you know, issues almost right away with the first bite. A lot of patients will mention um, we'll mention onions and garlic. So those can be major triggers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, everybody has kind of their own, their own, you know, special FODMAP foods. Like some patients, you know, are, have a, um, have a gluten sensitivity along with, along with SIBO. Some will have a dairy sensitivity. So what I'll often recommend is, you know, go check out the low FODMAP diet <clears throat> see what foods you're having in excess quantities every single day. See what foods that are on the okay list and let's, let's rejig what's happening here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So definitely when we're in the kill phase, right? Like really being careful about the, the foods that fuel these guys. Right. But yeah, a hundred percent. I knew sugar was there. I knew I just, sugar's just so, leads to so many different issues, but it tastes so good, but you know, does such bad things. Um, okay. What was I going to say? Um, okay. So what are some things that people can do sort of at home to start? Yeah. You know, if they're kind of experiencing these symptoms, don't have a diagnosis yet. Um, you know, but just generally like bloaty, gassy, like, you know, just some of those typical signs and symptoms. Yeah. So never underestimate the power of diet. Like that's really, you know, foundational principle number one. Um, check out the low FODMAP diet. Keep a, keep a diet diary. Um, you know, rec and, and not just what you're eating, but record bowel movement patterns and symptoms. Because if we look back at what you had the day before or the day before that, right, there can be a delay. Sometimes it's a delayed reaction or sometimes it's immediate. But if we can start collecting that data, to help give us more information on what's causing somebody to have those symptoms. That's really important. Um, you know, the second thing is when we support the migrating motor complex, we want to be leaving three and a half to four hours between calories. So like between meals, but also between snacks, like really, I call it this, this like mini intermittent fasting during the day. If 
somebody can stick to three proper meals, having enough calories at those meals, and then avoiding snacking in between, that will significantly help a patient with SIBO because, you know, not to make this overly complicated, but that that uh, motility signal happens about three hours after your last meal. And it's that motility signal that we really need to support to make sure it's sweeping food through at appropriate intervals. Um, a third thing is sleep. So sleep absolutely plays a significant role with bowel habits as well as with stress resilience. So when you get a good sleep, the next day, person is more likely to be able to handle those things that maybe would have set them off if they had a bad sleep. So, you know, sleep really according to your circadian rhythm, if you can, like try to go to bed at 10.30 or 11, give yourself seven and a half or eight hours of sleep. Um, that will help your gut the next day, especially with patients that have SIBO. Um, and then another thing too is, you know, I like to recommend um, the use of bitters. So bitter food, bitter herbs. What bitters do are they actually stimulate the vagus nerve. And again, back to what we were talking about before, that vagus nerve is really important for engaging the parasympathetic system. So, you know, herbs can be like things like gentian, dandelion, cardamom, you know, bitter foods or, you know, um, bitter melon is an example. The cruciferous vegetables are all bitter, so broccoli, cauliflower, etc. Um, but there's a lot that can be done there to very mildly support the nervous system. Um, and then again, you know, supporting stress, stress management, breathing exercises are incredibly important, you know, for, for all gut issues. And then most importantly, see the right practitioner because somebody can be guessing, you know, about how to treat themselves, not getting the right tests. Like it's important to get the right testing and the right treatment. So see the right practitioner. I can't stress that enough. Thank you. I, I th those are, I think, you know, really great starting points um, that anybody can do, right? Because it's not, you're not really, there's no supplements, there's no medications, right? It's just like kind of working with your own body and like giving it good information, right? So the food, think of food as information, right? What, what kind of information are you feeding into your system, right? You know, how are you managing your stress? Because that feeds information. I, I always, you know, I, I, I'll talk to patients about their stress and I'll say, you have to understand that our stress system works like this. You're in a hut in a tree and there's like a pack of lions circling that tree. And I'll ask them like, you think you're going to sleep with a bunch of lions underneath your house? They're like, no, obviously not. I was like, well, do you think you're going to digest when you, there's a pack of lions down there? And they're like, no, I guess that's not really important. I'm like, is sleeping important? You know, like, is, is having sex important? Like, all of those things do not become important when there's a pack of lions circling your house. And that's, the pack of lions could be any number of things, financial stress, work stress, relationship stress, you know, you name it, pick a lion and that'll, you know, basically that, that, you know, so we need to kind of create safety in our body and we do that by stimulating our parasympathetic nervous system, right? So breathing, diet, sleep, you know, having fun, you know, hanging out, socializing with safe, safe distancing in place during a pandemic, um, you know, those kinds of things, right? Yes, balance, right? Balance is so incredibly important. And, you know, if, if, you, know, if, if you find yourself eating while doing work and eating in the place that you do work and, and not really focusing on even chewing your food, you know, 
like those are habits that you may want to reevaluate. And another thing too, is a lot of people actually are, are so ingrained in, in this type of lifestyle of stress where they actually can't even identify with the word stress. So it's interesting, right? Because sometimes I talk to patients and I'm like, you know, like you're doing a lot, you know, you're working like, you know, 80 hours a week and you know, like there's all this stuff going on and you're not stressed. But then if you ask yourself, if you, if you feel like you're in the elastic band and you can't stretch yourself anymore, that is stress, right? So you may not identify with a word, but if that's the feeling that you have, then, then we've got to work on, we got to work on some things. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, speaking of working on things, um, where, you know, where can people find you, follow you, um, if they want to see you, like, wh- t- tell, tell the peoples where, where you're at. Definitely. So I am, uh, I'm licensed in Ontario. So I am seeing patients uh, in Ontario, both in person and virtually, you know, I can see somebody through video if they live far away. Um, But uh, I I am seeing patients at two locations in Mississauga, um, eco physio and high tech physio. And, um, you know, I do, I'll often do a 15 minute free meet and greet just to kind of, you know, get to know the patient a little bit more or, if, you know, and for them to get to know me a bit more, see if we're a good fit. So, um, you know, and so th- those, those tend to be quite helpful too, if patients are interested and, and, but they're not sure yet of booking. Um, and I will, I have a lot of social media as well. So patients can find more about me at, um, www.drvanyand.com and, um, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. So if you just Google my name, those will pop up. Awesome. And we'll obviously post, um, the links, all of the links in the show notes to make it super easy uh, for you guys to uh, make contact and, you know, follow on socials. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and um, talking about this, you know, this uh, topic. And I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about, you know, the gut and, uh, you know, the microbiome and all that. So we live in some interesting, um, interesting times. So thank you for taking the time out of your day to come and chat with us about it. My pleasure, Madeline. Thanks again. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. (laughs) For sure. And of course, I want to take a moment to thank our listeners. And if you haven't already, you should subscribe to the podcast because this way you'll be you know, up to date um, every week with the latest and greatest episodes. Um, So yeah, make sure you hit the subscribe button. We're on, you know, Apple and uh, Android and Google and Spotify. And of course, tell your friends about us too. All right, that's it for today's podcast. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.